Hello everyone, welcome back to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and joining me today, a man who sat on a nest of yellow jackets and lived to tell the tale. How's it going today, Chad? Oh my god, you remember that story? <laughs> yes, I do. Oh, someday I'll have to tell that story to one of our podcasts, but today's not that day. Uh, I'm doing I'm doing good. I haven't I haven't sat on any uh, any uh, black jackets or yellow jackets in a long long time. So today this is actually part two of historical gaming, the New Testament. If you haven't had a chance to listen to part one, you might want to go back and listen to that episode. It'll give you a little bit more of the historical context. Uh, also, before we begin this episode, as with part one, just want to want to remind you that. Uh, yes, we are going to be talking a little bit about real-world religions, and again, I know that is a touchy subject with some gamers, but again, this is all being done to put things in historical context and is not being done with the intent to promote or demonize anyone's religious beliefs. But one thing I would like to mention is we are recording this on December 19th which actually I think is appropriate because we are actually in the middle of Saturnalia, the Roman festival honoring the agricultural god Saturn, runs from December 17th to the 23rd. Well, I wouldn't recommend throwing a banquet to celebrate this uh, holiday because of the current pandemic. You can still celebrate this holiday by wearing tacky clothes, putting on a funny hat, and buying cheap gifts for your friends and family. And remember, friends, let's keep Saturn in Saturnalia. So, what are you saying about my shirt and my hat? Actually, well, your hat that you're wearing now isn't particularly silly, but I wouldn't necessarily say that flannel is uh is tacky. See, what they used to do during Saturnalia is, you know, normally Romans would wear their, their plain togas, but Saturnalia was the time to put on the you know, the the very extremely colorful and extravagant clothes that would be considered in poor taste under any other circumstances. All right. I do have to say that Green Bay Packer jersey you have underneath your flannel, I would argue that that can be considered poor taste. Only if you're a Bears fan who lives in Wisconsin. I mean, come on. Yeah, I know. I'm guilty as charged on that. So to recap part one, in case you don't have a chance to go back and listen to it before listening to this episode, the events of the New Testament occurred sometime between 6 to 4 BCE to approximately 110 CE. At this time, Judea was a province of the Roman Empire. There were several important events that occurred during this time period including the burning of Rome in 64, the Jewish revolts in 66. Also, uh, both Jerusalem and Rome endured some periods of political turmoil uh, from 67 to 68 in Judea and 68 to 69 in Rome. There was the siege of Jerusalem in 70, the birth and spread of Christianity, and then the possible persecution of Christians under Emperor Domitian. And just so you know that we're not a couple of rambling idiots here, uh, each of us 
does actually have a little bit of a background in religious studies. Again, I've mentioned numerous times on my podcast, I have a bachelor's degree in the subject. So uh, Chad talked a little bit about his personal experience in religious studies back during uh, the Old Testament historical gaming episode. But for anyone who doesn't want to go back and listen to that episode, why don't you give us a recount of your background in religious studies? I'll do that in just a second. But first, I want to say, yes, I am a rambling idiot. and Don't tell me <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> and number two, I do not have a back. Well, I have a background in religion. I don't have a background per se as like I don't have a degree in religious studies. However, I was born and raised Catholic, so that's kind of like having a degree, at least in Catholicism. <laughs> and then I also, I like to read about different religions, and I like to see how they fit into history, how they fit into other religions, you know, because it is common practice that when a new religion arises and it becomes the main religion, they kind of adopt certain things from the old religion, a lot of cases it's dates of of feasts and things like that and and catholicism did the same you know from other religions as well so i just like to see how they all fit together and um i'll tell everybody right now a, a little background for me is i think there is one god and we all worship the same god we just give them different names okay that's not a bad view to have, because I, I know one of the things that, I mean, I think it's important sometimes to understand religion, to understand some of the conflicts that uh, we've seen in, you know, over the course of history. I mean, if you look at a lot of the religions, they are attempting to do the same thing. Uh, you know, religion to a certain amount of degree, and you can argue me argue with me on this if you want to. Is a, mechanism, is a mechanism of control. You know, people, uh, different institutions want people to act in a certain way. And so they come up with religion to make people act in that certain way, or at least to better control the way people act. Because there's always somebody that doesn't prescribe to the current religion or the current way things are done. But Overall, and especially not so, I don't think so much in modern times, but in early times, I think that was a good portion of the church was a control over the people to make them act in a civilized manner versus a manner in which, you know, us as animals would have probably acted. Yeah. You know, and I had a professor that I mentioned here and there on my show, um, Dr. Wendell Charles Bean, and that is a great name. It is. He was uh, he was a character. I mean, and in a good sort of way. He was one of those guys that was incredibly brilliant, but sometimes you really had to adjust your way of thinking in order to truly appreciate his classes. And the thing I've always mentioned about him is he would sometimes be talking normally in the class, and then the next moment he would be talking very softly. And very passionately, it was almost like he was having a private conversation with God himself. And then the next moment, he was running around the classroom, yelling at the top of his lungs and shaking his arms around. It's like, 
you know, I said very brilliant guy. And one of the things that he always mentioned is sometimes he compared religions to different paths up the same mountain. When you're at the base, they look different. But as you start to get towards the peak, the sometimes things start to come together where they start looking more and more similar. Now, I wouldn't necessarily, it's the same with all religions, but definitely I think he had a good point there. All right, and that's great. Religion is a great thing to talk about, but that's not what we're here to talk about, is it? Not really. Let's talk about some Dungeons and Dragons. How does that sound? There we go. That's what I'm here for. Okay, so hopefully after that uh, lengthy introduction, y'all realize that Chad and I are not just bambling idiots, despite what Chad likes to say there. <laughs> so to talk about some of the D&D stuff, as with any historical gaming episode, we like to start with the different classes and how we think they could be incorporated into the specific time period. Now, in the case of the fighter, I think there's three different archetypes from that time that you could base your character on. Roman legionnaires, Jewish zealots, and gladiators. So the Roman legionnaires were the professional soldiers of the Roman Empire. And when you enlisted in the army, you signed on for a 25-year period of service. And they were actually the backbone of the Roman Empire. Because have you ever seen a map of how much land the Roman Empire covered? I have. It It was massive. It was, it was from obviously Italy, Rome, all the way up into England, um, almost to Scotland, if not into a bit of Scotland, uh, Ireland, they through Germany, and maybe even a little bit further to the east than Germany, some into Africa. I mean, they were everywhere in the world at the time. Yeah, the I think I was reading they covered like 2.2 million square miles. Or kilometers, I don't remember, but it was huge. But yeah, it stretched from the British Isles all the way to Western Europe to Spain and Portugal, northern Africa. It spread down through Egypt along the Nile. Uh, I'm not sure how far east it got, but Judea, again, what we now know as Israel, is within that boundary. When you think about how much land they controlled, how much of it did they really control, though? Yeah. Exactly. I mean, it's not like there was a, a group of Roman legionnaires, you know, located on every city block. I mean, obviously there were, you know, I they, I'm going to guess, and again, this is just a guess, they probably focused more on the urban areas that they that were developed, where, you know, while there was stuff on like the outskirts that was technically under their control, they may not have had as much of a direct presence there. No, so, that, that makes complete sense to me, so. Yeah, and, and in addition to being a fighting force, they also provided a number of other services for the Empire. They served as administrators, construction workers, and peacekeepers. Also, like in today's uh, military, the Roman legionnaires sometimes had specialties. And if you were a specialist, you were known as an immunes. And again, the mis as with the first episode, the mispronunciation disclaimer is in full effect. I don't know about you, but I don't speak Latin. I don't speak Hebrew. So I am going to bet that I probably will be mispronouncing a few things today. So these Amunes, they 
had advanced skills and they could serve as medics, engineers, carpenters, and artillerymen. I was going to say, so let's talk a little bit about how these fighters would have been uh, outfitted as far as equipment and weapons. And also let's talk about their commitment to Rome when it comes into contact with playing D&D. So as far as um, what I've seen, I have not done a whole lot of research on this, but from from movies and books and things like that, it looked like most legionnaires had some sort of a breastplate and a backplate. They usually wore, it looks like chain or something that would cover them from the waist to the knee. And then they would have some sort of a tunic or, or undershirt below that. And maybe a helmet. Some Some wore helmets, some didn't. And that might have been a rank thing or not. I don't know. So just to be a legionnaire, by D&D standards, um, if you look at pricing, you'd have to be pretty wealthy in a D&D setting to be a legionnaire. Unless, of course, you had a good DM or a nice DM that you were able to talk into. Well, well, I'm going to be a legionnaire, so this is what I need to, to fulfill that role. You know, because a breastplate and, and, and all that stuff, it's pricey. Yeah, and uh, actually they were, you're right, they were very well equipped. And I actually did a little bit of looking into the types of armor and weapons that were in common use around the Roman Empire. So we actually have a fair amount of stuff to work with. Now, the type of armor, they did have equivalents to chain and scale mail. Now, the the type of armor we usually see is the one that's made of strips of metal that cover the torso and the shoulders, which is called the Loretia segmentata and again this is suit sheets of metal riveted onto leather so this would probably be your best armor that would be available at this time probably equivalent to banded mail okay yep and they also carry these large shields called a scutum which was actually curved instead of flat and it was long enough to protect most of the body also had a metal boss in the center of the shield that could make it effective as an improvised punching weapon, like if you're going to try to, you know, push your opponents away. My the thing that really intrigues me, as far as a player, is how would you, as a DM, and I'm asking you as a DM, not as a player. How would you dictate to your players? Okay, you're a Roman legionnaire. What kind of freedom from? I mean. Would you run a game where everybody was a legionnaire so you could send or you know orders down from above, or how would you how would you play that 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 connection to Rome? Well, that's actually a good question. It it depends on whether we're doing something that's more focused on the Roman Empire itself, or in this case, we're talking about just in you know Judea, the again the world of the New Testament. So if we're sticking to just a campaign focused in the Holy Land. I could see the Roman legionnaires doing a number of things. I mean, they could certainly be, they would be good NPCs because, and again, it all depends on how you run, want to run the campaign. I mean, if you're running your campaign where your characters are a group of early Christians or part of some religion that's not accepted legally in the Roman Empire, then, you know, these legionnaires would be your enemies because you'd have to pretty much be avoiding them now of course it was always possible that you could be a legionnaire who converted 
to one of these religions and, you know, is now in service to it. I think you're kind of missing the question I was asking, though, is if you had a player that wanted to play a Roman legionnaire, how would you restrict that character? Because in my mind, as a D, as a as a game master, if I want, if somebody came to me and said I want to be a Roman legionnaire, I would probably say, okay, I'm going to allow you the equipment because otherwise it doesn't make sense. But I'm going to put these restrictions on you, like when when the local uh, Pontius calls, you have to go. It doesn't matter what you're doing out in the greater world. You know, because you've got this oath, um, because that that was one big thing about the Roman legionnaires is they all took an oath under Caesar. So they had to, I mean, if they didn't, it was treason or whatever, you know, title they wanted to put on it. So that's that was my question is, as a DM, what restrictions would you put on a player that wanted to be a Roman legionnaire? And I think it's really going to depend on where in the empire you're setting the campaign now if we are focusing on you know you're setting your campaign in in uh in judea it's really going to depend a lot on the time frame because again it seems at least from when i was reading up on it the period during the the 60s was a bit more chaotic and turbulent than it was at later times I mean, if you're setting in a time where it's a bit more stable, so I would say probably after uh, 70 CE, the, after the Siege of Jerusalem, they probably would have a bit more freedom. But, you know, that is a good point where the, uh, you know, the Roman legionnaire is going to be at the beck and call of the empire. So if you're in a time of peace or relative stability, you're not going to have that as much of an issue. Yeah. So. My problem with that is if you're an active legionnaire, if you're in your 25 years of service, you can't just run off into the desert and have an adventure with three guys you met in town. You have to be able to be there. You have to be where they can find you. Um, when I was reading about Rome, I believe at one point I had read somewhere that they got like a month a year if it was a non-war time where it was their own time. Refresh me, just because I can't quite remember. What is the span? What are the years of what we're calling the New Testament era? About 6 BCE to approximately 110 CE. Okay. So, you know, like you said, a lot. Of, there was a lot that went on between the 30s and the 70s, you know. So to do a campaign in that time frame... To me, my thought would be, okay, you're all legionnaires, and you're helping the, you know, you're helping the uh, empire. Now, does that stop your group of legionnaires from changing alliance and doing things like that? No, you know, and that could be your whole setup from the beginning. Is you're all legionnaires now, but you're going to lead them in a way going to, you know, all become Christians and then fight against the empire. Mm -hmm. But I think. Within those in, within those forty or fifty years, I think that would be the only way to run the campaign. Yeah. Outside of that, I think I had read one time that in times of peace, if you were a legionnaire and, and there was no war going on, you were afforded like a month a year where you were just allowed to be, you know, go home, see your wife, see your kids, that kind of stuff. So there are ways around it, you know. 
Uh, but I don't know. I think for the most part, running running just one legionnaire in a group of normal people, I don't think that would work that well. Yeah, and it would be tricky uh, for the again the reason you brought up because again if you're serving in the you know the army, obviously there you're not going to have time to allow yourself to be pulled off in too many directions. Um, and as far as the weapons that they used, the again we have a fair amount of weapons to work with. The main ones were the gladius or short sword, the spartha or long sword, uh, daggers, spears javelins the roman legionnaires also used a special type of spear called a pilum so this spear had a long metal shank with a pyramid shaped head and it had a very specific purpose it was designed to penetrate shields so it would get stuck in the shield and the this would force your opponent to disregard the shield because of the added weight you know so that's something i could see adding where you know, if you're using it against someone with a wood shield and you either get a critical hit or you get more than like maybe three or four than your required uh, hit roll, you could say that it, you know, it got stuck in the shield. So that means, okay, yeah, you got to drop your pillum and draw your sword, but now your opponent has to disregard their shield and you've still got yours. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, should we move on to the next fighter? Otherwise, this episode's going to be three hours long. <laughs> yes. Uh, the next type is the Jewish Zealot. So these were resistance fighters who opposed Roman rule. So they played a very important role in the first Jewish-Roman War from 66 to 73 CE. However, they were not always respected by their countrymen because of their use of violence. They were often described by some contemporary writers as wild and boorish. Now, it should also be noted that zealots were far from being a unified group. They often argued and fought among themselves, sometimes dra taking drastic actions. For example, uh, one group of zealots destroyed the food stocks during the Siege of Jerusalem in 70 CE. So, I was thinking what, because of the fanatical devotion they had to their cause. Actually, I would probably stat these guys out as similar to berserkers or barbarians. Uh, I mean, specifically, I was thinking of the bar the berserker kit from second edition, and I'm sure there's equivalents in the other versions of D&D, &D, but that's at least how I saw them. Yeah, I could, I could absolutely see that. Um, and yeah, these were not a good group of people uh, for most, in most cases. They, again, um, I, I can't even say that they were fighting for religious reasons. They were fighting for governmental reasons, you know. Uh, today, we'd call them terrorists, yeah. you know, because of what they did, because of what they did. So um, I would agree with that. So next, let's move to my favorite Roman warrior archetype, the gladiator. So... Gladiators were unusual because, in a way, they were similar to adult movie stars. They were popular, they were admired, but yet they were looked down upon at the same time. So while there were certainly people who were fans of members of this profession, there were also other people. It's like, okay, yeah, it's, it's awesome that, show, that service you do, that show you provide, but you're also kind of on that lower rung of society. Right, and... 
you know, let's be honest. Gladiators, every time they walked into that ring, took their lives in their own hands. Yep. You know, whether they were fighting animals, other gladiators, uh, you know, it was, like you said, it was kind of a glamorous life, but it was a very dangerous life as well. Though it wasn't actually as dangerous as you might, might think. Uh, because when I was, again, doing uh, research for the episode, only about 11% of gladiatorial matches were believed to have ended in a fatality. So, well, it, you're right, it was certainly dangerous. I mean, you're going out there with wild beasts or other highly trained fighters and you're swinging swords and stuff at each other. Yeah, it could be certainly dangerous, but sometimes it was limited to first blood sometimes it was limited to when one of the gladiators either gave up or you know was incapacitated and couldn't go on so for gladiators i mean if you look at um the way they're portrayed in tv and movies you know they always seem to have a net and a short sword you know some cobbled together armor um and and I don't think that's probably historically correct. Uh, maybe the weapons are, but I'm guessing the armor is not. Actually, it is. But I don't know. Yep, it it, it actually is. Uh, that was actually one of the things I want to talk about. There were different types and different styles of gladiators. Now, usually gladiators were slaves, criminals, or prisoners of war, though some people did become gladiators out of their own free will. We also know that they did receive good medical care because they were seen as an investment. And there is evidence of, from studying their remains, of gladiators who did suffer wounds, serious injuries, but did end up recovering. And, you know, you're mentioning the, you know, okay, sometimes a sword, sometimes a net. There's about 20 different styles of gladiatorial combat, and each had their own specific types of weapons and armor. So this was often modeled after various opponents that the Romans had fought. The armor and weapons were chosen supposedly to make the fight balanced because each style would have its own strengths and weaknesses. But again, usually your, uh, again, your torso didn't have as much armor because that was a weak spot you had to protect. But the types of gladiators that are most common, and these are the ones we usually see in movies and pop culture, are the mermillo and the Redditarius. The Mermillo was armed with a helmet, shield, and sword. Usually he had armor on his sword arm as well as his legs. The Retarius often fought with a net and a trident. He only had armor on his right arm. He usually fought against another type of gladiator called a Sector. A Sector was similar to a Mermillo but wore heavier armor with fish-like motifs. So you could probably see why they had that matchup. Right, right. The, there was also the Thraix, who wore light armor, carried a small circular shield, and often had a curved sword. So his main tactic is he was, used the curvature of his sword to try to work around the opponent's shield and stab him in his unarmored backside. There was also the Bestarius, who fought against wild animals. Lacarius, who fought with a lasso and either a short sword or dagger, and the Demacarius, who fought with two short swords or scimitars, but generally wore very little armor. So 
it's not known if there were any gladiatorial events in Judea, but I can see it being permissible to allow a player to be a, a gladiator and it wouldn't be too horribly out of place because Jewish prisoners of war were sometimes forced to become gladiators and it was actually possible for a slave gladiator to win his freedom. So I think it's certainly possible that you may have had a character who was captured in Judea, brought to Rome, trained to be a gladiator, and then eventually won his freedom before heading home. All right, so little piece of historical trivia for you. Do you know who the first, uh, well, in equivalency, the first athletic millionaire was? Naughtiest Maximus? Or Biggest Dickus? <laughs> I don't know the guy's name, but he was a gladiator. You've never, said... a, you've never seen a Monty Python's oh, Life of Brian? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I have. But it was a gladiator. He um, got so good at what he did that he got basically, you know, like groupies that would just give him stuff. And he would be rewarded by the, the local, you know, Pontius Pilate or the governor or whatever you wanted to call him with, you know, monetary goods. And he would have been the equivalent of the first athlete millionaire. Yeah. And also another little fun fact, uh, the movie Gladiator with Russell Crowe, I was reading something, an article about it where originally they were going to have a subplot where, uh, Russell Crowe's character was being paid to advertise a certain type of olive oil, but the, you know, the screenwriters decided to throw it out because they didn't think it was, it was very realistic, but it actually would have been historically accurate because sometimes, yes, gladiators were used for endorsements. I can buy that. I mean, especially if you were famous or not famous, but you were well liked by the audience. And you go, hey, I like this kind of olive oil. They'd go, well, I'm using that. I'm going to use the olive oil he uses. You know, I can see that happening. If Biggest Dickus is using the uh, this type of olive oil, then it it has to be good. So many places I could go with that. And we should Let's just, move just on. go on. To... Now, is there any truth to gladiatorial games where they would sacrifice criminals and Christians and things like that? I'm not sure about criminals. I think there was, there is some evidence that Christians were fed to the lions, but I'm not I'm not a hundred percent sure on that. Okay, you know, there's there's a lot of stuff you need to pick apart when you're looking at history. So that's why I asked that question is because of other fallacies I've come across. I'm pretty sure early Christians were executed in the not in the Colosseum itself, but in similar like venues but i said it's not something i looked into too much for this particular episode um because remember we're still at that time period where while christians were looked upon very skeptically and sometimes with mistrust we weren't quite to the wide-scale persecution as that would come a bit later uh we're still in that time frame where persecution of christians was primarily up to the local governor where you might have some that were relatively tolerant and then you'd have others that were 
much, much more draconian. Moving on. What do we got next? Okay, so the next type of character, the ranger, and this one I think would be tricky because, I mean, the Romans did worship a variety of gods, so I wouldn't see it as entirely inappropriate. Uh, probably the most appropriate deity for a Roman ranger would be Diana, goddess of the hunt. She was often venerated alongside local deities in the regions that the Romans conquered, but as far as I could tell, worship of her appears to be more common in continental Europe than in, you know, in the East. So I know the Glory of Rome source books doesn't recommend rangers, but if the game master wants to allow them to be incorporated, they'd probably be more appropriate for the Germans, the Celts, and the more rural people who lived on the outskirts of the empire. Yeah, see, now... When I saw Ranger on the list, I'm like, that just, I don't think that would work. <laughs> and it sounds like the source book agrees with me. The Glory of Rome source book did recommend that if someone wants to play a Ranger-like character, your best bet would probably be to have him a Roman legionnaire and give him like hunting and survival proficiencies. That would probably be the closest, though the A Mighty Fortress Handbook does actually have a a, a kit that you could adapt to other time periods, even though Mighty Fortress is for like, I think like the 1600s, but uh, I think it was called like the Forester. And essentially they're kind of like a, a fighter that can move silently and hide in shadows in a natural setting. So I guess if you took the Ranger archetype, took away the animal handling ability, took away the spells, uh, but left him with like the smooth silently, hide in shadows, uh, the survival and tracking. You could probably give him the two weapon fighting and it wouldn't be too drastically out of place. That would probably be the closest to a ranger you could get. Yeah, seems fair to me. Next, the Paladin. And the Glory of Rome sourcebook does recommend it as a follower of a religion called Mithraism. This is a Roman religion that focuses on the worship of a god named Mithras, which is the Romanized name of the, the Persian god Mithra. It is popularly believed that there are several parallels between Mithras and Jesus, though these ideas actually didn't start to come about until the 1800s and are not supported by historical evidence. Part of the problem with Mithraism, though, is we don't have any direct writings about what they believed. So most of our evidence either comes from archaeology or what we know from historical writers. And unfortunately, people who wrote about Mithraism were often antagonistic towards those people. So we can't really, we have to take what they say with a huge grain of salt. Now, archaeological evidence shows he was worshipped throughout the Roman Empire, often in an underground chamber called a Mithrarium. These chambers were often decorated with signs of the zodiac. Usually, these places were located near springs or streams, suggesting that fresh water was a key element of their religious rituals. There's also various depictions of Mithras emerging from a rock and holding either a sword or a dagger in one hand, and a torch in the other. 
One of the core aspects of this religion that we do know about is they had a community meal that involved bread and a drink. We do know that Mithraism did start around the same time as Christianity, though it began to decline in the 4th century after Christianity became the dominant religion. It is believed this decline is due to a combination of people giving up the faith due to persecution or followers just converting to the new religion. A common image we see in the religious decorations of Mithraism is that of Mithras slaying a bull, though we don't know the story behind it. Possibly it's a reference to astronomy, maybe Taurus and Orion, because again, we know that a lot of times their temples were decorated with astronomical symbols. We also know that initiates would go through seven different rituals and seven different ranks, with each one corresponding to a different planet. We also know that Mithraism was popular among soldiers, though it was practiced by people from all walks of life. Curiously, though, it was believed only males could become initiates. It was also believed that while someone from any level of society could become an initiate, how far you advanced depended on your social class. Sounds good to me. So moving on, we have the monks. And this I actually could see working very well in the time of the New Testament. The Greeks practiced a martial art called pancration, which means all of power. It consists of both striking and grappling, and some people consider it the world's first mixed martial art. Boxing was also popular in ancient Rome until it was banned in 400 CE. There was also a type of gladiator called the Cestus, who fought with his fists and no armor. One thing I forgot to mention when we were talking about gladiators is they could be either male or female, though female gladiators seem to be very rare, but it was the same way with these boxers. Women could become boxers as well, though at this time there were no weight classes, rounds, or time limits. It was pretty much punch the other guy until they can't go on. Depictions from vases and sculptures show these boxers wearing hand coverings and arm wraps. So these matches often involved a referee who held a long stick so he could use it to whack a fighter who had performed an illegal move. Okay, yeah, I can see that. I mean, I can see monks working in this uh, in this space. So this brings us to the class that Chad likes to play, the rogues, the thieves and the bards. You know, I I I'm going to stop you just for a second cuz it is a it is a it is a class I love to play. However, I to this day I don't like to call them rogues. They are thieves. That's what they are. Now, if if you want to play a rogue, I think there's a place for that. But then don't call then don't be a thief, be a rogue. So, but anyway, continue. I'm sorry. That's okay. I, as far as the thieves, one role they could play is that of the Sakari. And if again, if you go back to the Old Testament episode, we did talk a little bit about uh, them in that particular episode, though those people would be out of place in the world of the Old Testament. Now, what the Sakari were, they were a branch of the Jewish zealots, and the name translates something to the effect of dagger man. And as you might expect, they carried daggers under their cloaks. 
So they were zealots who would assassinate people who they felt were not sufficiently Jewish or who were Roman or Roman sympathizers. And if you're playing first edition D&D, I could actually see this working as a model for the assassin class. Because again, these were not nice people. You might think they're like, well, they are trying to, you know, drive out these, uh, this invading force. Well, they were also known for killing women and children indiscriminately. I think when it comes to that, I, I think in any, I think you could use assassins in any version of D and D. I believe there, there is a class in everyone in Second Edition. I know. There wasn't in base second edition, but when they did the black books, they brought in the assassin. Uh, third edition definitely had an assassin. I don't care about fourth edition. And in fifth edition, I believe they brought in the assassin as a playable class as well. So, And of course, a thief character during this time doesn't have to necessarily be an assassin. You know, there were certainly several of your average street criminals. So you could certainly play someone wandering around the streets of Jerusalem who was trying to steal from other people Um, because since at this point in history we start to see the development of more of these large cities there's going to be people who are going to have a way to accumulate more wealth and have a place to store it as opposed to earlier times when you're nomadic and you generally don't carry any more than you need yeah and you know as far as that types of thieves you can have your cut purse you can have your you know, your confidence guy, you can have, I mean, you could do anything. And when you're sitting in a city like Jerusalem or one of the bigger cities in, in, uh, in Judea at the time, I, I think you can use just about any type of thief, but yeah, I mean, I think these play really well at this time period too. Yeah. And the glory of Rome source book actually had a good idea for one called a charlatan. And I think in the complete bards handbook, there's a charlatan as well. Because uh, apparently it was common for people who to pretend that they had magical ability and they would use that to swindle money. You know, sometimes it was, you know, relatively benign. I don't think it was really anything with like horoscopes because while astrology did exist at this time, with the idea of the personal horoscope didn't quite exist at this time. Uh, usually astrology was used to predict major events not minor ones you know it's like will there be a war or will there be a a good growing season not you know will you win a million dollars tomorrow right you know there was there was some use of astrology uh in that sort of a way like uh, when a child was born into a into you know where they're going to become king you know Sometimes they would call astrology astrologers in and say, "Okay, is he going to survive to this date? Is he going to become king?" You know, and because parents wanted to know, not not for the kids' sake, but for their own sake. Um, but yeah, for the most part, you're right. Astrology was used for big things, you know. And then your bards, I even though the glory of Rome source book doesn't recommend them, I still think that you could modify them to be your historians. So, I mean, I could, I don't think it would be necessarily horribly out of place to allow them some minor magical abilities at later levels, but I mean, I think their whole legend lore ability, 
their ability to influence reactions would certainly be appropriate for a bardic character at this time. Oh, yeah, I think bards would be awesome at this time. I mean, come on, there had to be guys that went around telling stories for money. There had to be guys, um, like you said, that, uh, you know, his, history guys, they, they wanted to know what happened before them, and they found it out. I don't think, you know, maybe the handbook says no, but I don't think there's any reason you can play a bard in this time period. Yeah, because I had mentioned in the part one about the well-known Roman uh, historian Tatticus. I think that's how it's, his name is pronounced. Like I said, I might be mispronouncing it. But yeah, he I could see him as being a bard. Yeah, I agree. Originally, I envisioned this as a two-parter, but since Chad and I are both babbling buffoons and we just keep talking and talking and talking, I think what we're going to do is we're actually going to extend this out into a three-parter because I actually still have a good page and a half or so of notes. And I think by the time I'm done editing this episode, it's going to be close to an hour. So I think this is a good place to call it quits for now. What do you think, Chad? I think that's great. And I want to take a quick second here to let people know something new that we're doing. We have a support page for all of our podcasts now. So at the end of the episode, you know, whether you watch us on Anchor, Podbean, Spotify, uh, wherever you listen to us, at the bottom of the description, there's going to be a link. All you got to do is press that link and you can help support the channel bring you more geekery in general, more musically challenged, more want to hear something else, more something of the occasional off the top of our heads. What did I say? You said something else. Oh, want to hear something <laughs> interesting. Uh, more of the off the t top of our head kind of podcast uh, when we come up with a topic for those. So we would really appreciate it. Uh, it would be great for you to help us out. And yeah, we'll, Alan, I'll talk to you again here uh, in the next episode. Yeah, and I, I know I mentioned this before, but just to reiterate, currently I am posting on both Podbean and the Anchor site. Uh, so what you'll want to do is uh, you'll also want to look up uh, Eclectic Media Podcasts on Anchor FM, and also you can should be able to find it through iTunes as well. But yeah, I am going to continue to update Podbean at least through I think I was saying probably at least through January and then after that I'm just going to be going over to Anchor and then in uh and moving forward going to be keeping this channel open for a bit but eventually I'm probably going to end up uh closing it down but it's probably not going to be updated after uh after January so that is still a bit in the future, though. So with that said, I'd like to thank you all for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next time. You have been listening to a production of the Eclectic Media Project. Please check us out on the web at www.eclecticmediaproject.com and on Podbean and iTunes. Find Scott and Chad on Twitter as well at emp underscore scott and at Chad EMP. We are on Facebook at Eclectic Media Project. Visit our publishing arm at www.poigamestudio and follow them on Twitter at poigamestudio. Thank you and we look forward to bringing you more thought-provoking and enjoyable content. <laughs>